I was just reflecting that, you know, normally on Sundays I'm just very anxious. And that's, I mean, that's true today too, but but there's something about the word of the Lord. And, and especially, uh, I think Psalm 8 was especially calming today and just um, ready to be filled and ready to watch God work and move in this place from that. So thank you for that reading, Ellen. We have an exciting day. How many of you woke up this morning and knew it was Trinity Sunday? I did. Chris did, yeah. <laughs> Chris, Chris had to listen to how excited I was. <laughs> and I am. I really, I've said it before, I really like the church calendar because it makes sure we celebrate or mourn or reflect in all the right ways. And uh, this is a celebration. Like last week was a celebration. This is also a celebration. Um, I'd say we should get up and cheer, but... Oh, thanks, Natalie. Good. All right, Natalie started us off on the right foot. Yeah, so only a few of us knew it was Trinity Sunday, um, but we all know now. And so I want us to take this moment to get into this mindset of empowerment, because that is what the Trinity is about, really. Um, We can celebrate this day because we have the Trinity. And you'll find out as we go. But before we pray, I just want you to know that we are celebrating, we are praising. This is an awesome day. (laughs) So let's turn to God. Our gracious God, our Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you are, We thank you that who you are and what you are has given us salvation. God, we pray for your blessing on this word, your blessing over our hearts and over this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to start off with John chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. John 16, verses 12 to 15. And while you're finding that, I'm going to say that this is the text that the lectionary gave us. Three verses. But it's actually part of a much, much longer context. And this is Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples, which has gone on for a couple of chapters now. So this is just three verses out of a few chapters worth of a very, very action-packed moment Jesus is having with his disciples, where he's saying goodbye, and they're wondering where he's going, and he's, he's, he's saying this weird stuff about leaving, about suffering, but he's the Messiah, and he shouldn't. It's weird to them. And then he says this, I have to go. And that's where we come in. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. 
He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. It's a strange thing, and I bet it left the disciples wondering what was going on. And as I reflected over the Trinity this week, sometimes I wondered what is going on. (laughs) And I think that's been the story of every time I've reflected on the Trinity, but I find I'm not alone. The best word I can use to describe the Trinity is a mystery. And not just any mystery, but a glorious mystery that's sometimes not meant to be solved. I'm reminded of the story of a man who walked along the beach, pondering the Trinity, trying to make sense of it, wondering who God was in and is in all of his glorious, awesome being, and how it relates to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as he pondered and walked and walked and pondered, he thought he heard the voice of God. And the voice said, pick up one of the large seashells there by the shore. And so he picked up a large shell. And then the voice of God said, Now, take the ocean and pour it into this shell. And the man thought, No, no, that isn't right, Lord. I can't do that. And the voice answered, no, of course not. In the same way, how can your mind, a human mind, a limited and finite mind, ever hold on to and understand the mystery of the eternal and infinite triune God? And so if the mystery of the Trinity is as big as an ocean, and our minds are no no bigger than seashells, even a big seashell, then we can fill them absolutely up to the brink with the knowledge and joy and true awesomeness that is our triune God, but there will still be ocean that we can never obtain, at least not yet. The man from our story was St. Augustine. Now, certainly, his mind was a very large seashell. He's one of our greater thinkers in the history of Christianity. And he was born at a time when many of those great thinkers were also pondering the complexity of the Trinity. And so I have to think, if he's never going to grasp it in this lifetime then it's okay if we don't either, and yet we still strive, because it's important. 
and maybe that's a mixed message that I'm sending you. It's too much, we'll never understand it all, but it's very important, so keep trying to understand it all. And if that's how you're feeling, that's okay, because that's where I want you. Now, Augustine had, as we do, obviously now, the statement from the, count, the first council at Nicaea. Um, he was born about 30 years after the statement was created. And yet he did still live in a time when heresy was running rampant, and people really were trying to truly wrap their minds around the person of Jesus Christ and the thought of worshiping a God who was three, but actually one, and still in the absolute necessity, three. And we take this all for granted. Because how often do your thoughts keep you up at night trying to figure out what it means that we worship a God who is three in one? And aside from Rebecca and Chris and someone else who raised their hand, maybe Wendy, how many of you thought it was Trinity Sunday today? Not many. It's not something we think on very often. But the founders of our faith didn't have the luxury of taking this for granted. And heresy was spreading like wildfire. It was dangerous. It's dangerous to our salvation to not understand who the person of Christ is or who the person of Christ is inside of our triune Godhead. So now the Council of Nicaea was formed uh, under the direction of Constantine in a special response to Arianism. Arianism asserts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was created by the Father. Jesus Christ is a person who is distinct and apart from the Father, and therefore Jesus Christ should be subordinate to the Father. Now, if you're a, an early 4th century Christian, this actually might seem to be very adequate and it might seem to give you a good understanding of the Trinity, and you might want to cling to that. And that's the danger of heresy, because they sound very good, but they don't capture the truth of the kingdom of God. If Jesus was only human, then there's no power within him to forgive our sins. If Jesus was subordinate to God, less than God, created by God, then he does not have the power to forgive us that we need. And we would be, in a word, doomed. But we're not. We have a promise of eternal life. So it can't be that Jesus was lower than God. And it can't be that Jesus was only human. It's a problem. And yet, back in the early 4th century, there was no precedence. And so this is what the First Council had to figure out. And if we today think that this is a hard mystery to unravel, <laughs> just imagine being in that room. It's hot, and it's crowded, and by crowded, I mean 300 of the world's greatest Christian thinkers are sitting around trying to determine 
what is right and what is wrong and are we saved through this person of Christ or not? And tempers were flaring because even though we don't think about it, understanding the Trinity is a big deal and Santa Claus was there. Or the person of St. Nick. St. Nicholas was there, jolly old St. Nicholas, but he wasn't feeling very jolly that day. And in all of the pressure, he punched Arius right in the face. So, (laughs) the mystery of the Trinity is so confusing and so big and it's so important that it caused Santa Claus to punch a guy. And you can think of that next Christmas. In fact, I think you probably will now. Uh, The best gift, the best Christmas gift that St. Nick ever brought to us was a passionate and solid understanding of the Trinity. So think of that at Christmas or the next time we read the Nicene Creed. Either that or the next time we read the Nicene Creed, you can think of punching your neighbor, but please don't. It's not very godly. So I keep telling you that the, the, the mystery of the Trinity matters, but why? And I, su- I suppose it's um, not a very nice Christmas present if you don't understand that you need it. So the very existence of the eternal kingdom of God is based on a triune God. God's plan for salvation for us and therefore eternal redemption is possible only because Our God is a triune God. God's very personality is what it it is because he's a triune God. And I said that the greatest thinkers in all of history could never fully comprehend the glory and beauty and complexity of the mystery, and that's true. And I don't have any delusions that will walk away knowing it all. But we're not saved because we know all about the Trinity, We are saved simply because the Trinity exists. And my only hope is that we can walk away from today with a greater understanding and more than that, a greater awe and passion to praise him because we don't worship a dull, one-sided God, but we worship a God who is multifaceted, who is three-in-one, creator and savior and sustainer, and we worship each of those parts. That's important. We don't just worship God who is creator or God who is redeemer or God who is the sustainer, but we worship all three and equally so because all three are crucial. So, of course, we have the three different parts. The first everyone knows is the father or the creator. And of all the things I learned in seminary, this little tiny piece is my favorite. It's a very simple truth, and I think that most of us know it. It regards ethos and pathos. And ethos is a Greek word meaning character. Character that is used to describe the guiding beliefs or the guiding ideals that characterize an entity. 
So at God's very core of his being, who is he? What is that certain guiding ideal that completely and utterly defines his character? It's his ethos. It isn't a part of him. His ethos is him. And God's ethos is perfect, everlasting, and absolute love. Chesed is the Hebrew word meaning steadfast, godly love. God's love is so perfect, we can't even begin to comprehend it. But what's more is that it's not just his love or an action or a thing he gives, it's him. And how much more are we at a loss to comprehend that? And 1 John 4.8 spells it out as plainly as it possibly can for us, that God himself is love. If we do not know love, we do not know God, because God is love. Now, along with love, there is an action. That is the pathos. At our core, we are one thing, and this one thing drives us to act in this predictable way, this innate way. For God, his ethos is love, and so the way he acts has to always be perfectly righteous. God acts in perfect righteousness and perfect justice because he loves so perfectly that he cannot wrong anything. He cannot bring injustice. He cannot be or bring unrighteousness. He is perfection in all of its incomprehensible glory. And so his actions are equally perfection. His ethos is love and his pathos is perfect, complete righteousness and injustice. So then we go back to the idea of creator and father. He who created the world to share his glory. Why? Because he is love. That's part one of the importance of the Trinity. We were created because of part of this Godhead. This part of this Godhead is perfect love, and so he needed to share that. God shared his love with those he created. God is also part of a triune God, so he's communal. He wanted community. He wanted to share. He wanted to spread his love. And this communal God created us to share in the glory and his love of his kingdom with him and with each other and with all of creation. And that alone is worthy of praise. That our God is so perfectly loving that he created us and that he's so powerful he created it all. So first we praise the creator. But you know the story. Adam and Eve were the humans who represented all of humanity, and they sinned, and sin and brokenness entered the world. And here we have 
a God who's the very meaning of perfect love, who can do nothing that is unjust. And all of a sudden, being love and doing love seem to almost contradict each other. And why is that? Because the wages of sin is death. And not just bodily death, but eternal and complete separation from God. God who loves and is communal, God who adores each of us beyond what we can ever know, is now separated from us because we've sinned. And his very being prevents him from being around sin or that which is tainted by something, by anything that is any way less than his perfect love. So at once his very core says that he loves us so desperately and completely and wants to be in community with us. And his very core also says that he must always act in absolute justice, which demands that we separate from him in death. There's a problem. But then we have the book of John. John 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And then a few verses later, jump to 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Not the same because the word was with God, but not separate because the word was God. This son, the word, had the same exact ethos and pathos. He was of the very same essence, the very same being as God himself. And only God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can ever be completely and entirely loving and righteous. But in our broken state, only one who was completely loving and righteous could save us. We can't save ourselves because as much as we love, even as much as we strive to have the love of God, we still are short. We needed someone to represent us. The Father and the Son, two entirely distinct parts of the Trinity, and yet God did this all for the glory of his creation and of the glory of sharing creation with us. Since death came from man, Adam, the resurrection of the death, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15:21. He is the Savior, the Son, because he comes from the Father. He was sent by God to, be, to us to be completely human, 
because only by being completely human could he take on our brokenness and that which we were suffering from in our sin. He had to represent us just the way that Adam represented us also. He couldn't do that as God. So he became human, but he couldn't take it away from us as human. He had to be completely God. God here on earth with a very specific task in relation to the glory of the kingdom. As he walked here on earth among us, people were shown the example. Would it have been better if he remained here on earth instead of ascending to heaven and sending a third member of the Godhead? It kind of seems like an extra convoluted step. And yet, that brings us back to our scripture today. In the son's farewell discourse, he's telling his disciples anything and everything that they're going to need when he leaves them. And yet he can't tell them all of it. So he gives them a little prep. I have to leave you because it isn't until I leave you that the Holy Spirit can come. And we wonder, well, why is that important? God is here on earth already, and God is setting his example already. Can't he just stay? And so we think back to the mercy seat. We talked about this in confirmation. Rebecca's smirking, actually. (laughs) Uh, we, We think back to the mercy seat. And God's plan from the very, very beginning with the tabernacle first and then the temple, there had to be a way to remove sin. And it was difficult and quite honestly impossible to live up to. And yet once a year, the high priest, after an incredible cleansing ceremony for himself and for the entire community, was able to enter into the Holy Holies and bring the offering to the mercy seat where it would be wafted, so to speak, to God's presence. The offering had to come to the mercy seat in order to be complete. They would prepare the offering outside. They would say the prayers outside. They'd do the cleansing ritual outside. All that was done But the sins weren't forgiven until the offering was brought to God, to God's right hand. Jesus had to descend into hell to defeat death for us. And then ascend up to heaven to be the offering brought to God. Jesus has to sit at the right hand of God to advocate for us when we've messed up which we will, and we do. He has to be there to say, I have made this person righteous. He had to leave the earth. And furthermore, isn't it better that he left the earth? I mean, we want him here, but isn't it better that the Holy Spirit was sent in his place? 
because Jesus was a man who was limited by humanity and all that came with it. And so right now, here in California, we are filled with the Holy Spirit because we have faith in Christ. And right now, in Minnesota, my church family is filled with the Holy Spirit because they have the peace of Christ. And right now, the Nelsons in the Caribbean are filled with the Holy Spirit because they have the peace of Christ. Jesus was one man. If he came to California, it would be very hard for that one man to teach and to lead and to show the way for those in, Cal- for those in Minnesota or the Caribbean or any place around the entire planet, which is where the Holy Spirit is right now. The Father sent the Son. The Son needed to leave the earth so that the, so that the offering could be complete and the Spirit could be sent to guide us. Now we get into our passage And in this farewell discourse over the course of these couple of chapters, the Holy Spirit is mentioned by Jesus. And he uses a special word for the Holy Spirit, and that word is parakletos. That means counselor. This word is used only in the New Testament referring to either Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Actually, it's used only in the book of John. The author himself refers to Jesus as parakletos, counselor, mighty counselor. And Jesus himself refers to this Holy Spirit with the exact same word, counselor. We tend to think of this as a comfort word, and that's not wrong. The Spirit came at Pentecost and filled us with gifts and empowered us and comforted us. He's that kind of counselor, yes. And he's referred to as such. But here in John, he's referred to as a different kind of counselor, In Greek culture, parakletos was used as an advocate in a court of law. So a legal advocate, that combined with with how Jesus referenced him in the same vein as himself, shows us that the Spirit is also an advocate for us. We hear that he advocates, advocates our prayers to God when words are not enough for us. So we go back to that shell example, just as we cannot comprehend the mystery that is the Trinity because our minds are limited, so we cannot comprehend who God is, so we can't even begin to give the words that we need to give. And that's okay. We're allowed to stand in awe and speechless before God because the Holy Spirit is our advocate. The Holy Spirit can communicate what we are just so limited that we can't possibly find the words to describe. 
He's that kind of advocate. But there's something more. When Jesus walked here on this earth, he showed us the law of the kingdom of God, which brings us back to the beginning. God the Trinity created us, God the Father, so that we could take part in his kingdom and spread his glory and share in his love and his righteousness and and glorify him for eternity. That sounds amazing, but we messed up. And the son came to show us how to do it. Yes, he, he came as a sacrifice for our salvation, but he also came to show us what was the right way, the loving way, the completely just way to live. And then he left, but not really, because the Spirit came, and much as Jesus was our counselor, so the Spirit was and is. The Spirit fills us and is a moral compass. He's our comforter, he's our advocate, he's our moral compass who guides us who helps us, who empowers us, who gifts us, we needed the Spirit to come. And still, all this for one purpose, for the glory of God in the kingdom. And all this, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have one ethos and one pathos in common. All of them work in unity for perfect, complete, absolute love that no one else can possibly obtain or understand. They work in that because they are that. They show us how to be just and righteous because they can't show us differently. For one goal of one essence, this is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's impossible to separate as much as it is impossible not to separate. And so it's going to be continuing to be a confusing mystery, and it should, but I really hope that today you think about it and allow yourself to enter into the confusion and the beauty that is three-in-one God each of these parts with a very specific role in how we get to spend eternal life with this communal, beautiful, triune God that is our Father and Son and Holy Spirit. These things I hope for us. These things I hope we ponder. And, if nothing else, if the beauty is somehow surpassing you. I hope that you at least understand how critical the Trinity is and how it could lead somebody to be so passionate that even Santa Claus would punch out Arius. But again, don't do that. We're going to go into a time of prayer and then we're going to go into a time of Uh, Worship through offering, if the ushers could um, be at the ready. Our Father, we thank you 
that your plan is perfect beyond understanding. We thank you that we don't have to understand it, but nevertheless, you have saved us. You have brought us to glory for the purpose of your glory. May we praise you, God, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.